In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The title of my sermon today is A Tale of Two Feasts, as today's text described two different marriage banquets. The first is from Isaiah 25, an oft-quoted passage that envisions an eschatological feast that many of us believe is the same marriage feast of the Lamb spoken of in Revelation. The beauty of its poetry imagines a new world where there will be peace on earth and death will be vanquished. But this vision is also firmly located in the history of Israel. There are those who heard Isaiah's message who are now living in exile in Babylon, who had experienced a brutal capture, watched the destruction of their temple while their city burned, while their captors engaged in the rape and murder that was typical of the brutal warfare of that time and sadly ours. These are the same people who sang as recorded in Psalm 137, by the waters of Babylon we sat down and wept as we remembered Zion. Surely for those who heard Isaiah's prophecies must have relished hearing Isaiah acclaim God as victorious over an alien city that is never to be rebuilt. But the victory spoken of in this passage is not simply a victory over Israel's foes, but a victory over death itself. Thus Isaiah moves from the temporal to an eschatological future where all nations will stream to Mount Zion for what truly does sound like a heavenly feast, rich food, well-aged wines, and where all believers will meet their God and their tears will be wiped away. This is a vision of hope. Those who have waited for the Lord to save them will rejoice in that future salvation. But the bitterness of the exile is not forgotten. The last few verses of this chapter, which our lectionary compilers conveniently do not include, ends with a declaration that Israel's enemies will be destroyed. The Moabites will be trodden down in their place, their pride laid low, cast to the ground, even to the dust. The passage ends then by declaring hope and judgment go hand in hand. I recently read Esau Macaulay's new book, Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise of Hope. Many of us know Esau. I have known him for 10 years. I met him at Neshota House. He is an ordained priest in the ACNA and serves at our sister church, Church of the Savior. But in this book, I learned about an Esau I didn't know. Father Esau draws an important parallel between the suffering of Israel and the subsequent rage and call for judgment found in passages in the prophets like the reading today and Psalms like Psalm 137 with the rage and loss black people have experienced in the history of our country. He writes that those passages that describe the Israelites' pain and rage over what had happened to them gives the black reader of scripture, quote, permission to remember and feel. It allows us to bring the depth of our past experiences to God. It makes the suffering of the traumatized a corporate reality that moves with us through history and contends that black Christians must articulate what happened to us to God and to others 
as a part of the healing process. But he goes on to say this, the miracle of Israel's witness is that the Old Testament could imagine something beyond blood vengeance, that the prophets whose writings were addressed to those in exile called on them to hope for more than the destruction of their foes and the salvation of Israel, but to look to the salvation of their former enemies. This is a remarkable book, and I highly recommend it, especially during this time we are living through, for it does offer a message of hope. But in it, Father Esau also relates several very painful stories from his own childhood and adulthood in which he experienced racism and hatred from white people and his own subsequent struggle as a young man with desire, with despair and anger. I am having my Bible students at North Park read this book this semester, and one of them said to me this week that she was so struck that out of his pain and all that he has experienced, he has been able to write a message of hope and forgiveness. For Esau, the ultimate message of Isaiah is a remarkable one of personal and corporate hope. He writes, Isaiah then calls for black people in the midst of their pain to begin to envision a world not defined by our anger. The Bible calls on us to develop a theological imagination within which we can see the world as a community and not a collection of hostilities. It does so by giving us the vision of a person who can heal our wounds and dismantle our hostilities. Isaiah's prophetic word can create hope for all of us who hear it. Isaiah's first words in the passage today are, you are my God. It simply begins there. To profess that God is real and worthy of receiving our trust. The community in exile in this text's audience grasp God's promises and choose to believe that God's faithfulness will transform their present and future. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. In our gospel text, we have another story of a wedding feast. Are we talking about the same feast? I think we are. But whoever said that the God of the Old Testament is harsh and judgmental and the one of the New Testament is kind and forgiving has never been given these two texts for one sermon. This picture is a bit bleak. The invited guests to this wedding feast failed to show up. One group is just too busy and preoccupied with their own affairs and even when the king implores them with promises of wonderful food and drink, they still refuse and even mistreat and kill some of the messengers. There is a lot for us to unpack here today in terms of our present situation and in the ways that I think we often ignore God's invitation to be with him because we're just too busy or distracted or sitting in despair. But I would like to look at the text from the point of view of the writer who told it in his own unique voice, Matthew. 
the context of the parable is pretty clear. Jesus is teaching in the temple a few days after his triumphal entry in Jerusalem, and the Pharisees and temple leaders are challenging Jesus' authority to teach and heal. Jesus is simply describing here the consequences that will follow their refusal of him as their Messiah. But let's consider a moment what Matthew might be feeling. Like our Israelites in exile, he is also describing some really very real past pain. He knows the outcome of this confrontation. In just a few nights, Jesus will be sitting in the secret lair of the high priest and his cronies, and he will be the one who is judged, and their verdict will be death. Death to his beloved master. In Matthew's telling of Jesus' parable, the feast takes place while a city burns perhaps alluding to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. But if you apprehend a tone of anger or revenge in the teller of the parable, I believe it is there. Matthew remembers what meals with the bridegroom were like. Meals that the religious elite failed to attend or refuses to attend or participate in. He remembers what it felt like to dine with the king's son, and is speaking to the hope that they will feast again on that day of consummation. The closing word of the parable, for many are called, but few are chosen, are interesting in that this parable, in, in this parable, it is the people who were called or invited to the banquet who chose not to attend. Thus, the impenetrability of election and free will is aptly portrayed. And while the judgment may seem harsh to us, for Matthew, who has lost his Lord to a terrible crucifixion at the hands of the people this parable denounces, consolation for him might come through the judgment and not around it. We need to understand judgment from the perspective of an oppressed people. And the world of the Jews in Isaiah's time and Jesus's. As N.T. Wright puts it, in a world of systematic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, and oppression, the thought that there might come a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor are given their due is the best news there can be. Placing their hope in their Messiah, judgment is expressed as a hope that God will, through judgment and his Messiah, set the world right. So there is an elephant in the room. We should all be asking, when and where is this banquet going to take place? We have a king and a kingdom, a kingdom that is promised in the future, but it is definitely not realized. We, like the Israelites, are still waiting. So some might say the banquet, and I think actually our hymn today might even allude to this, is going to take place in heaven. But in the words of N.T. Wright, the language of heaven in the New Testament doesn't work that way. God's kingdom in the preaching of Jesus refers not to post-mortem destiny, not to our escape from this world into another one, but to God's sovereign rule that is coming on earth as it is in heaven, Heaven, in the Bible, is not a future destiny, 
I love the way he puts this, but the other hidden dimension of our ordinary life in God. God made heaven and earth, and at last, in the future, he will remake both and join them together forever. So it is our Christian hope that when Christ comes again, it will be the dawn of a new created earth inhabited by the resurrected bodies of those who've been promised eternal life. And I just, I'm looking back at this beautiful mural that we have in our church. It is so easy, though, to read two passages today about future eschatological feasts and simply spiritualize them. But Paul does not. In Colossians, for instance, he states, he states this, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So there's no doubt that in the New Testament, Paul and other writers, that we are promised that at Christ's return, we will be experiencing a new type of bodily existence and that this promised meal will be a real meal. I, for one, am really looking forward to tasting that well-aged wine. But in the meantime, what we do here is not wasted. The kingdom we hope for will reach its fulfillment in the eschaton as Isaiah prophesies, but it began with the resurrection of Jesus and as his followers, we are called to live in the power of his spirit so we can be a new creation people here and now and we can be a part of the anticipation of our true end. We celebrate and appreciate this reality in our feasts every Sabbath when we have a table laid before us in the presence of our Lord, the Eucharist, in which we proclaim this meal is the foretaste of the future by proclaiming the mystery of our faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. There are those who say if God is going to come and remake the earth, then maybe what we need to do now is just save souls for that future reality. Or maybe, as it has been suggested recently, we simply retreat from the world into our communities with all the world's cruelty and admit that the world is winning for now. But a view like this does not do justice to Paul's call over and over again in his epistles and in his epistle today that we read, to be steadfast in the work of the Lord. Paul encourages his fellow laborers in the, in the gospel here in Philippians to not lose hope, but instead to stand firm in the Lord who will provide strength and joy for the task ahead. The picture we have here of Paul cannot conjure up any idea that Paul thought what we would do in the present age doesn't matter. He urges us instead to keep on doing the things you have received and heard and seen in me, for we can do all things through him who strengthens us. 
Now more than ever, our world needs this message of hope, and we need to be the bearers of that hope. Yes, there are many things in the world to be angry about right now, but let's not stop there. As Esau Macaulay encourages us, let us recognize our anger and the temptation to live in hopelessness, but then take it to the foot of the cross of the one who suffered cruelty and hate for us, that we might live and serve as healing agents in this world, proclaiming an eternal hope. Amen.